All right, we're in the book of Joshua. We're in Joshua chapter 5 still. Last week we ended in this section, but I thought um, I really wanted to hit that last point a little more kind of expanded anyways in that kind of version of it. And we were looking at last week a sensitive topic of circumcision and what that was about and the sanctification process for the Jew who was going from the wilderness experience and about to go into battle and about to go in to the land that God had promised. And there was this uh, private moment where God prepared his people for battle and they had to be obedient. And we kind of ended looking at the last section of chapter 5, which dealt more with Joshua, the leader. And uh, I wanted to look at that again this morning and just kind of uh, highlight some things about his, well, that, the last few verses of his leadership in that in that chapter and kind of hopefully gain some things that we can look at today uh, for our own lives and so we're going to pick it up in Joshua chapter 5 and in verse 13 and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and said to him Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. We're introduced again to Joshua, the leader that was a successor of Moses. And uh, up to this point in the Bible, up until the book of Joshua, you have Moses primarily as the focus of the leader of, of the nation of Israel. And we see him pass off the scene, and then Joshua is the next in line, and had been chosen by God, chosen by Moses as well, to succeed him when he did die. And so we see Joshua as this, really he's an untried leader at this point, most likely in his 70s or 80s, so he's not a young man anymore. But God was about to use him mightily in leading his own people into the land and then conquer that land. Uh, One of the things that kind of is hard with the book of Joshua is there's a lot of imagery of uh, obviously fighting and violence and those kind of things. And um, some have actually kept away from this book saying, well, it really has nothing to do with what Christians need to do today because we're not called to an earthly battle. We're called to a, um, a spiritual battle. And, and yes, and that is true. We are called to engage spiritually in a world that is at war in many ways, in many forms. But we are called to a higher calling than just an earthly warfare. Nevertheless, through the book of Joshua, we not only see how the Christian, how the believer of all times, needs to uh, follow the Lord and some things that hopefully we've already learned that we need to put in our lives. And also the idea that Joshua, as leader, he portrayed or pictured a greater one to come. Another one whose Hebrew name was Yeshua, and that's Jesus. And Jesus appears as in the scripture uh, as the captain of our salvation and is, um, I believe, the one who is here in Joshua chapter 5 that Joshua comes face to face with. He is what we call the pre-incarnate Christ before he put on flesh at Bethlehem's manger or in the virgin's womb 
and then born at Bethlehem's manger. He existed eternally as God the Son. And there are numerous occasions in Scripture where he appears to people. And we're going to look at some of that today. Nevertheless, there are times when uh, sometimes men, uh, people are called to do things to help oppressed others, you know, who are oppressed and others that need to go in and take and claim victory. And the picture here in Joshua is one of reliance and understanding that Joshua, though he was being the new leader and he hadn't been tested yet in battle, he was going to be the one whom God would would uh, exalt and people would end up following and I can imagine as this scene unfolds and we read it uh, he had a lot of things going through his mind wondering how am I going to do this and we'll look at that in a little bit more but you know there are times where sometimes you can have this what we call a crisis of faith and I don't think that's what's going on solely here in Joshua 5 the end of it but we see a, a warrior who is untested somewhat publicly he had been tested privately with God for sure and and he was a man of faith but now he's facing Jericho this walled city and it is the first city in which they would have to take and it is an impenetrable city in you know humanly speaking anyways mentioned that the walls of Jericho in and of themselves were there were actually two walls there was an outer wall and an inner wall and there were the uh, inner wall itself which was like anywhere some of the foundations are up to 40 feet thick most of it was about 20 foot thick and it extended anywhere from about 30 to 60 feet in areas around the city and it was one of those things that was impenetrable there wasn't a way you were going to just go down and and crash through it uh certainly not with a whole bunch of foot soldiers and they weren't even going to be called to be soldiers they were just going to march around the city that was god's plan But there are times when God stops and strengthens you in those difficult times of decision. I think of Sergeant Alvin York. And Alvin York, if uh, you lived about 100 years ago, his name would have been synonymous with World War I. And he was the most decorated U.S. soldier of World War I. And he was uh, granted the Medal of Honor. And uh, he single-handedly captured 132 Germans um, having in the process having to had kill uh, over a dozen of them and taking a hill that had a machine gun on it and he was known for that and he later years um, people knew Alvin York the great soldier of World War One. but interestingly enough if you know the story of Alvin York um, he in in 1914 had been converted to Christ and he became a Christian and the world was gearing up for war in the, in the West anyways, in, um, in uh, the United States. We wouldn't go into World War I until late uh, in that time frame. But in his 20s, he became a Christian. He belonged to a church denomination that believed in, um, in pacifism, it would be called, and that you would have to, if you went to war or uh, in any way, you know, you would not be able to take another life. And So when Alvin York was 29 years old, he was drafted into the U.S. military, into the army, and he had this crisis of faith because he didn't want to go and be a killing man, and he didn't believe at that point that he should. And so he signed, uh, basically he, um, he, he wanted to become a conscientious objector, which there was provision for that, but that was actually denied. 
And he was in a, a quandary because he was going to be um, either sent off to war or he was going to be uh, basically discharged uh, dishonorably and even maybe uh, set to trial as someone who refused orders and those kind of things, or a court-martial. And so he was facing that kind of pressure as a Christian. He had a captain that came to him in his, in his company, and the captain was a Christian, and he started laying out some Bible verses showing how that there were times when it was uh, right and proper where a man might have to go and take someone else's life. Now, uh, he... York began to look at those Bible passages and doing that. But I like what happened in his head. This is what he said. And this was right before he was to head off to Europe, but he was in, basically, uh, he was in training. He says, quote, As I prayed there alone, I knew that he was there, referring to the Lord. He understood I didn't want to be a fighter or a killing man. He took pity on me and gave me the assurance I needed. It was his will, and that was enough for me. He came to this point where he realized this is the calling he had had at that point in his life to become a soldier. And anyways, he went on to be um, one of the most decorated and bravest probably men of World War I, or at least the one that were honored, and he survived it, which there were a lot that didn't. But I say that because I often think of Joshua in the Bible as a man that probably had some of the similar feelings. Like, Lord, how is it that you're calling us to go into this land and conquer it? And for them, it was, a, it was going to be, well, it was going to be warfare. And he's at the eve of that, or nearing it anyways, of going into the land and leading his people in and against Jericho. And all these things would have been going through his mind. And what we see here, if you want an outline, we see an image here in verse 13 of a, a watching warrior. Joshua is watching while others probably were getting some rest and sleeping and maybe others were just getting you know their their things in order Joshua is out there and he's looking at the circumstances that are laid before him verse 13 says and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and he looked and behold a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand And I think this is the uh, part of this that I want to look at and think about for a moment is that here's Joshua, a leader. He stands alone for a moment anyways, and then eventually realizes that he's not alone. Um, And often leadership can be a lonely place. It really can. It was Abraham Lincoln who found himself in some of the darkest times of American history as the union leader, and he realized that the very decisions that he would have to make would result in thousands of men dying and it would also could result in the union breaking up or staying together it was a place that he had as responsibility because of authority that he could share with no others he didn't have close friends that understood he did not have subordinates in the military that understood he did not have family members that understood he stood alone in that And he was often called the loneliest man of his generation, even though he was president of the United States. Sometimes leaders stand alone, or at least seemingly. And yet, that was not the case with Joshua. He might have been thinking that. 
Here he is looking out, thinking about Jericho and the responsibilities that rested upon his shoulders at that moment as the leader. What will I do? And no doubt he was probably uh, as well praying at that time as most would do. And I think it's important that we understand that first and foremost, we don't have to give necessarily an account of our, all our life to each other. Although there is a measure of accountability when you're around people, that's for sure. But ultimately, we give account to the Lord. And the Lord was there with him and saw him. And he realized that. In Romans chapter 14, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And I'm glad I have to give account of myself. And I don't have to necessarily give account for every human being on this planet. I have to give account to myself, and that's hard enough. But I would say to you, it is the same backdrop that every one of us has. We have to give account to God someday. The good things and the bad things. We see a man who's getting ready, this watching warrior. He was someone who was not running back across the Jordan, back to familiar places in the wilderness. He wasn't the one that was tendering his resignation letter and saying, I think someone better can do this. He, someone younger, instead he was standing there and he lifts up his eyes. And it's only when he lifts up his eyes that he realizes um, there's someone else that's with him in this place. By the way, we as believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to a spiritual warfare. And you may indeed end up as a Christian like Alvin York having to face some uh, earthly warfare. That, that happens and I'm thankful for those that defend others on the behalf of good against evil and that's good and that is honorable and i think it's in keeping with what the bible teaches ephesians chapter 6 paul writes to the church at ephesus and he says finally my brethren be strong in the lord and in the power of his might look what he goes on to say put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood So our battle isn't like Joshua in that way. He was wrestling against flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. But there is something that we do share with Joshua in the book of Joshua is that he had to ready himself for battle, spiritually. He had to come to a point where he relied on God, and God would direct him according to his will. And we see that. We see this leader who had to prepare himself as a warrior. And by the way, if you are a Christian today, you need to be prepared for the battle, because the battle will be going on around you, regardless if you are engaged in it or not. But you're not going to be effective unless you're prepared for it. As Paul says, therefore, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. I can't imagine not having the Lord in my life when I see the world around me today and all the things that are going on and the concerns that are going on and not having the Lord with me to say, I'm here. I'm still in control of the affairs of man. We might not think so. You might think that it seems like evil is winning in so many fronts, but yet God can raise up kings and put kings down. He can do the same thing with anybody 
and he is the one who is orchestrating the very affairs of this life to bring glory to himself eternally. And sometimes his, we would just have to say his ways are not our ways, uh, but they're always right. We see this watching warrior. And we ultimately know that as a, a warrior, Joshua needed to prepare himself in these things. He had this great burden, a burden of leadership, probably the burden of loneliness, the burden of not knowing if there would be success fully. And he would have to do that. And he had the burden of the past. You know, it's hard to follow in the footsteps of a man like Moses, right? And yet, Moses followed after the same God. And it was only through a humble servant like Moses that eventually Moses could have led the people of Israel. And we're going to see the same thing with Joshua. When it says in verse 13, he lifted up his eyes, it it implies that he had his head bowed. And I've often said, was it just because he was discouraged or was he praying? Or was he, was he just you know, contemplating things? We do that. Sometimes we look down. And by the way, if you're looking down spiritually, you will never see what God wants us to truly see, which is him who's high and lifted up. I think of Isaiah chapter 6. And I won't turn to that passage, but in Isaiah 6 we read of uh, a time. It says in the year that King Uzziah died in Isaiah goes into the temple all right but it's the setting of it is very interesting because the year king uzziah died you can read about him in the chronicles he was a great king he did amazing things he was a he was a man that dug wells in the desert and he built all kinds of uh cunning inventions and all kinds of things like that he brought his rallied his people he did away with idolatry um he uh brought worship back the way it should be but then in a moment in his life of disobedience he goes into the temple to burn incense, was not, which was not his place. That was for the priest to do. And he wanted to do something for God, but in a wrong way. And God judged him for it. He was struck with leprosy. And he would, under the law that God had given, was that a leper had to be separated from people at that point when they were deemed leprous, because it was a contagious disease. And this great king ends up, his remaining parts of his days are separated from his own people in a separate house. And he dies a leprous death, which was a horrible way to die in those days. And this great king, who everybody had their hope in and all of that, because he had his hope in the Lord, disappoints them terribly. And it was only... At that moment after he died, Isaiah the prophet goes into the temple and he realizes that God is still on the throne. God is still high and lifted up. And God is still holy when we're not. And you read Isaiah 6, the opening verses of that, and you realize, and we know that he got a hold of the prophet Isaiah. He got a hold of Joshua. He got a hold of Moses. How about Abraham before him? And future, we can go right down through the Bible, the encounters people had with a holy, living, risen God, and they understood who he was. Well, Joshua lifted up his eyes. He understood what he needed to do. And we are reminded that we ourselves will also give account to this same one. We see this watching warrior and it can be implied that he's a brave man i can tell you that only because we don't see him running away instead he's near jericho um 
Now, when they crossed over the Jordan, back there in chapter 3, it says they crossed over at Jericho. Remember? Jericho would have been seen in the distance, but it was near there. And as they cross over, um, I mean, the natural thing would be to try to find refuge and take up shelter because maybe the people of Jericho are going to come out and attack us. But that's not what happens. And we find Joshua goes and he's now standing before Jericho. And I think he understood that there was a great mission ahead and that he had to be engaged in that. But all the other questions that would have been in his mind, I'd like to know someday, maybe in heaven I, I can ask Joshua and say, hey, what was, it, what was going through your mind on those days or that day or whenever it was that you stood there looking at Jericho or your eyes were lifted up in that? But we th- I really think one of the things, the characteristics about him is that he was a brave man. Um, and he didn't run from the difficult task. We see next an image of the Sovereign Lord. The Sovereign Lord. And I touched on this last week in the closing part of our message, but I want to look at it a little more carefully because this is the key to the commission of this warrior, is that he understood that he wasn't alone. Look what it says in verse 13 again. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes... And looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. And look what Joshua's reaction is. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant?" This, by the way, this one who he falls before and worships does not rebuke him for that. We know that this indeed is God himself, the Lord, who is there. And he tells Joshua, I am the captain or commander of the army of the Lord, the host of the Lord, literally. And Joshua understood who was before him. And you notice in the translators of the New King James, it says here, Behold, a man, capital M. And that is given in the text that this man is not just any ordinary man, but he is the ultimate, right, commander. But he appears as a man. And he has his sword drawn. That tells me something about this captain or this lord of, uh, the the commander of the hosts of the Lord, is that he was someone who is ready. His posture was one that he had a sword drawn. Immediately, Joshua wonders, is this man for me or against me? Because it determines what you're going to do. And when this man speaks, the Lord himself, Joshua, realizes who it is and falls on his face and worships. But it gives me great comfort to know this, that the God of heaven is ready, even when we're not. He has literally his sword drawn and ready to take on evil to take on sin to do those things and we see jesus later who is the one who also has great victory not over man's armies at the time see when you come to the new testament the opening of the gospels you have a whole bunch of people looking for a messiah that would come a christ who would come and would deliver them from the romans and deliver them from all the political influence of Rome and Rome and all the 
the military influence of Rome and give them back their land. And they wanted a Messiah like that, but they didn't realize they had a greater need than that, is that their sin, who's, which is our greatest enemy, was upon them, and they needed someone to save them from their sin. Jesus did that. When he came the first time, he came with his arms open on a cross and his body bore our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He died for sinners. He died for me. He died for you. He took my place. He was ready to do that. He set his face towards Jerusalem and he continued moving that direction until the mission was accomplished. And he is indeed the Lord of glory, the one who died on the cross for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. Victorious over sin and death. I can't emphasize that enough. He was victorious. Because of that, we have a Savior who is the captain of our salvation. This one who stood there with his sword drawn reminds us that God is ready for action and he's not just some distant force out there just kind of set us all in motion and leaves us alone to grope in the darkness ourselves. He's very much active every day in the lives of people and in this whole, uh, whole cosmos. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, this talks about the sovereignty of God and the fact that God works his will and he does things in accordance with his will and he works everything out for, for his glory. Not for ours, necessarily. Isaiah 46, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done. You know what that means? Is that God in ancient times has declared things that are yet not coming to pass, but they will. It's not by chance that you're here today at Madawaska Gospel Church at our building anyways. It's not by chance. God has worked all those circumstances out so that you're right where you are right now. Why I'm here. And I look at the myriad of things that had to happen just to get us here in the morning. Just on Sunday morning, right? (laughs) Yeah, some of you know. And yet he has us here. And And then sometimes, you know, it might be part of his will that you aren't here say what don't tell them not to come you know uh that's not what i'm saying but there have been times in my life where i have been delayed from going somewhere and i'm all frustrated and i think oh why isn't that i couldn't get there i was supposed to go there that was my plan and then i realized god had a bigger plan that day for some other thing and he puts me sometimes at the very spot i needed to be at that very time and i go wow You're big, God. My plans are my plans. That's all they are. If they aren't in accordance with God's plans, they don't amount to a hill of beans. Right? Except the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. Right? Our our things are empty unless God is in it. Look at he goes on to saying, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Do you know that there are these people that are out there, maybe leaders of the world somewhere, 
And they make some declaration that affects the whole world. And God says, I let them do it. Now, they might think that they're big, but they really aren't. I think the best illustration of that is in the Bible, in the book of Daniel. We are introduced to the world. Well, he was the the most powerful leader of his generation was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was so arrogant and proud of himself. He made this great statue to himself and made a decree. Everybody had to come and worship it. God would have his way with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? He didn't submit to God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was all about himself, and so he had to spend years, actually, as a wild animal, out of his mind, eating grass. You read about it in the book of Daniel. And it was only after he came back to himself and he realized who God really was, that Nebuchadnezzar was a little thing and God was big, that he started, and I think the most marvelous conversion of Scripture is recorded in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He was converted to the God of Daniel. We read of some of that in Daniel chapter 4. Here it says, This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will and sets over it the lowest of men. God can take and put anybody in world power. He can bring the lowliest of people into that. He can bring even bad people into that to work out some greater cause, maybe to provoke people back to himself. And we see that over and over again, even in Scripture. Daniel 4, verse 35, that same chapter. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Think about that. Daniel, is as he's uh, explaining this, and even the great Nebuchadnezzar was counted as nothing in comparison to God. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, he is God. He is big. He is the greatest. And there's no one that's going to stop him. A lot of people have tried. We read more and more about those instances. But Daniel is part of that. And by the way, God doesn't have to come up with a plan B. You ever have your plans change on a dime? Sometimes your whole life changes with some, something that comes as in the results of your life. Sometimes it's something that really hurts. Or a life-changing, altering event. And God doesn't have a plan B for you. That was all part of plan A. Now it's in for us to come in line with his will and accept that and give him glory and say thank you Lord I've often said about Amy Carmichael who is considered one of the uh, a great missionary she was an Irish woman who um, single she went to India and there she rescued many girls from some of the just awful temple practices that um, in, I won't go into details but some of the things that were going on there and she rescued them she became a mother to hundreds. And her grave today, uh, it just says Alma on it, which means mother. And it's in India. But I think of, of her, and she was a fiery woman. Um, they said that she was one that wasn't going to stop at anything to get it done. She was very much like that. 
And yet, much of what we know about Amy Carmichael today, we would not know except that when she was about, I probably get the age wrong, about 55, I think, she was riding on a horse at night, and she fell in a pit with the horse as well, and she broke her back. In the last 20 years of her life, were spent mostly bedridden in great pain. And she took that last 20 years of her life, and she wrote down most of these things. And she wrote a lot of hymns, and she wrote her story, and she wrote the stories of others and what God was doing during her generation. And today we know a lot about Amy Carmichael because of the last very painfully 20 years of her life. And she would echo that that was all part of God's plan for her. And very hard. It's not my plan for you, but sometimes God does things like that. And I just say, I don't say we welcome those things when they come, but they ultimately... The weight of glory is far better, right? Paul talks about our light affliction now, right? Weight out against glory, those two things, and glory always wins, right? Well, we, we read of this, uh, this, what this happens here with that. Um, the angel of the Lord, what we're seeing here, and it, and it says again here, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn, and we read in that next verse that Joshua fell on his face and worshipped. Now, the law, uh, under, which was given under the hand of Moses, totally forbid worshipping anything but God. And that it was actually worthy of death if you worshipped anyone or anything other than God. It's idolatry. It's part of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me, God says that right away in the Ten Commandments. And yet here we find Joshua worshiping this one. And we see no rebuke of it. We don't see any consequences of that. We see instead the right action that came as a result of that. This indeed is God. And as I said, the theological term is Christophany or Theophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of God, uh, in this case Christ. And uh, I I will talk more about that because the Bible has several of these instances, lots of them. We find um, all kinds of different instances. For instance, the, one of the first ones uh, is in the book of Genesis. It is Genesis 16. And you have the account of Hagar, Abraham's and Sarah's handmaid. Now the angel of the Lord, that's the and literally in Hebrew messenger of Yahweh, the messenger of God, says, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And we read of that. And in verse 10 of that same chapter, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Her, Hagar's descendants would be numerous. And they are to this day. And who is the one that ultimately um, brings life, right? It is the Lord himself. Not just an angel. Genesis 18, we read of this. This is Abraham. Remember, he's sitting in his tent. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. Three men. It says, And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. What's he doing? He's worshiping. And he said, singular, my Lord. Now, we know from Genesis 19, two of those men were angels, indeed. 
they were sent to judge those in Sodom and Gomorrah that did not repent. And they would be used in the deliverance of Lot, and they would be used in the judgment of God. But the one other is the Lord, and that's who, whom Abraham is addressing when he says, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. How I know that's the Lord is because the Bible is the greatest commentary on itself. And we looked at this when we studied through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 8, Jesus comments on this very, very thing. John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Jesus was saying at that very moment that he was back there in the days of Abraham. By the way, Abraham, you're looking at 2,000 years before, before the time Jesus is speaking this. Okay? And this is what the Jews picked up on, those that were gathered there with Jesus, the leaders there. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? I mean, come on, man, right? You're not that old. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And you know what? He was making himself equal with God in doing that. How I know that is because those that did not believe he was God, now Jesus makes this claim, all right? Those that thought he was blaspheming, because the very next verse says, then they took up stones to throw at him. And they were going to do that to kill him, because he was, if he was not God, he was blaspheming. So by the way, you have a big problem with Jesus if you don't believe he's God, because he claimed to be God. And he did the same miracles over you know, the various miracles. He had miracles over health and over creation itself. He had miracles over spiritual enemies. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And those were all demonstrations of his deity. He indeed was God. And I think the greatest commentary on that is very saying this, that they took up stones to throw at him. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And by the way, that very phrase, ego ami in the Greek, I am, is the exact same phrase that is attributed back there to 1,500 years before that, at the time of Moses, when God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And you know what? You find out in that same place that um, when Moses comes, he falls before the Lord, and he asks who, later on, whom shall I say has sent me? Exodus 3, 13 and 14. And he says, the I am. Ego ami. It's the same phrase that the Jews themselves chose when they translated their own Bible into Greek for Exodus chapter 3. Ego ami. When Jesus, and it's recorded of him later on in John, thousands of years later, guess what? He's equivocating himself with God. The same one who saw Hagar in the wilderness and Abraham 
and Jacob and wrestled with Jacob in the wilderness, right? Uh, the one who was with Gideon in Judges chapter 6. The one who appears to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. The one who was with Daniel in the Hebrew, uh, the, the fiery furnace, yes, of Daniel uh, in that chapter. And he also later would appear to Daniel himself and strengthen him. He'd be the same one who appeared to the prophet Zechariah. And he'd be the same one who would walk the same dusty trails we do here on this earth And he could go and sit by a well and say, I'm thirsty. Or be tired. Or be weak enough that he faced death and died. God in the flesh. Doesn't mean he ceased to exist, by the way. But he could die. He had to. That's why he had to come. So there's a lot that can be read into this. But I just say, this is the sovereign God. And the biggest thing is this. We come in the New Testament... And we're reminded that Jesus is with us. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a promise he gives to his disciples. That he's with us wherever we go. Oh, I'm thankful that he's like that. And he's with us today. Sometimes our eyes aren't lifted up to see him. That's the truth. Our spiritual eyes. A lot more could be said with that. But um, uh, we'll move on to our third point here. The image of a humble servant. We have this watching warrior. We have a sovereign Lord and a humble servant. And all the encounters with God in scripture always result in, well, not always, because sometimes people try to, to resist God. But they result in humility. Because when we truly encounter the Lord as he is, and he's holy, and I don't care how good you are, you're not holy enough. You never are. The most, the most holy so-called person that's ever lived on this earth, apart from Jesus, obviously, still falls short of the glory of God. And when we have a God encounter, and there are people out there saying, we need a God encounter, but what comes out of that is anything but humility. <laughs> you will find yourself undone before him and realize, oh Lord, I am just this unworthy servant. I am a sinner. I need grace. I need mercy. And it will empower us to worship him in a way that brings glory to him and none to us. We see a humble servant. And he said, no, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. That same Lord who appeared to Moses at the burning bush said the same exact thing. Take off your sandal. I think that's the same. By the way, it was the same thing that Ruth did. Or I should say Boaz did in Ruth. When he took off his shoe, remember? And it was part of the token of redemption that had to take place as a sign of redemption. That's Ruth chapter 4. There is a picture of humility with the lowest article of our body. It would be, in this case, the shoe and the foot. When we bow before God and we say, Lord, I am lower than the low. And you are holy and high and lifted up. That doesn't mean we go around defeated. We don't see a Joshua who never got up off his face. All right? 
And there are people that say, oh, to be holy, you always have to be defeated. And, oh, woe is me. I'm nothing. I'm a worm. I'm... And that's not, that's not even a biblical view of things. You are the object of God's love, and so much so that he was willing to come and die for just you. If you were the only person that ever lived on this earth, he still would have come to save you. How much more we need to pour ourselves out to him and say, God, though I be unworthy of great, such a great salvation, you're the one who has done that. You condescended to my level. You came here. And oh Lord, we need you. And he will forgive you of your sin. But it's not just, you know, Joshua was one-on-one with the Lord. And by the way, you are one-on-one with the Lord. All right? When it comes down to it, I am. He wants you. Not just your people or your church. None of them can save you. Only God Christ can save you. That's it. Jesus said of his disciples, he said this, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. One of the things that's taught here in Joshua, the end of these verses, is the image of a servant. A servant leader. Someone who is willing to fall on his face to recognize that the strength he has isn't enough and he needs the strength of someone bigger. And the leadership of somebody bigger. Problem with a lot of humanity's servants or I shouldn't say servants leaders is that they have no servant leadership it's my way or the highway and you follow me even though you're probably on your way to hell <laughs> that's that's how people lead in a lot of ways but we need more servant leaders like joshua like jesus and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted totally reversed from the way we're taught you know you're going to climb the ladder, you've got to step on everybody in the process. Get up to the top, right? Make a name for yourself. Jesus says, do it this the other way. Start at the bottom, and you stay there, and you know your, per- your perspective, and you will be exalted. And by the way, it might not be in this life. It might be somewhere else, in, in glory. Exalted. Far longer there than here. Sometimes we get the wrong perspective, don't we? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And again, I just say, that's our or should be our attitude. Is that, Lord, I can't do anything today apart from you. And uh, if, I, if I'm no longer tied into the vine that way, spiritually, because my sin has, has hindered it, um, I'm going to wither. You know, And the principle here is, is staying close. And that's our walk, our daily walk. Joshua was just a man, the one in the Bible here, he's just a man. But he knew who he had to follow and who the true captain of, his, of the Lord's army was. And he humbled himself. And God was going to use it when we come to Jericho and we see a great victory. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. And we've kind of, again, gone down through this. There's so much more that could be said and, and learned and worship you in spirit and in truth help us to lift up jesus christ before us and lord thank you even though there's so much chaos around us in the world and so many evil things happening all of that lord you are still the one who reigns sovereign and supreme and we just acknowledge that afresh today and we thank you in jesus name amen